0: Hi, it's John here. I'm not in the studio today. I'm actually on the shores of Burrard Inlet, staring at some of the most beautiful scenery in Canada, knowing this is the epicenter of Canada's climate challenge. Just north of me is the North Shore Mountains, which last summer were clouded in smoke from devastating fires, to the east of here, devastating floods. Over those mountains, was that horrific scene of Lytton, B.C. burning to a crisp. Everyone here knows the reality in the here and now of climate change. And we're all coming to grips with the reality of energy security, knowing that what we pay and what we need to move around, to stay warm and to stay cool is not getting any easier or cheaper by the year. I just stepped out of a conference room where Justin Trudeau was rolling out Canada's new emissions reduction plan, which tries to balance energy security and climate security along with economic security. Can it be done when Europe is staring at the reality of a horrific war? Can it be done when consumers all around the world are struggling with inflation? Can it be done when the technologies that we know we're going to need to get to net zero aren't really in our hands yet? These are some of the questions that we've been wrestling with at Disruptors, and we're gonna try to find answers to over the next three episodes. Join me as we meet innovators and disruptors from all over Canada who are trying to navigate this new challenge. They know this beautiful corner of Canada and all of our communities hang in the balance. This is Disruptors, an RBC Podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. On today's episode, we're talking with some of Canada's biggest thinkers on climate and energy security, each here in Vancouver for the annual Globe Conference. The conference kicked off with a splashy announcement that Canada would now aim to cut emissions by 42% in the oil and gas sector by 2030. But how do we get there? How do we reconcile our climate and energy goals? That may seem like a challenge of today, but it's also a challenge we've seen in decades past. And students of history are looking back in time to the last big shock to global energy markets. Among those looking back to the future is Peter Terzakian of the Arc Energy Research Institute in Calgary and noted author on energy trends. I caught up with Peter on the floor of the conference. Peter, hey, how are you doing,
1: John?
2: Oh, yeah.
0: So Peter, let's start with the long view of history 50 years ago, the IEA launches. We're now facing another energy crisis. Same or different?
1: Well, there's a lot of eerie similarities. I mean, the 1973 energy crisis was a consequence of military conflict in the Middle East, the Yom Kippur War. We were in the midst of a Cold War. Our adversary was the Soviet Union, which is Russia today. Uh, we have price spiking oil prices in the face of excess demand. And so there's a lot of eerie similarities uh, the only difference was, you know, r- rather than us sanctioning other countries, we were effectively sanctioned with the Arab oil embargo. And so, yeah, the circumstances were different, but in the end, it was a price spike and actual shortages of vital fuels for the economy, dominantly of oil. That led to the formation of the International Energy Agency, whose core mission was to restore energy security.
0: There was a climate movement back then, smaller than it is now, but the Brundtland Commission had uh, just done its piece and the world was aware of some of the challenges, not to the degree we are now. Clearly, the tension between energy and climate, if there was one then, energy won out. Today, we also have a tension between energy and climate. Right. How will this play out?
1: Well, actually, so I think some some lessons from the past um, environment as a broader umbrella has always been a force of change in the world of energy. You can go back centuries in terms of, you know, all the way from denuding forests uh, to all sorts of issues. There were big environmental drivers in the 1970s, uh, including smog, leaded gasoline, ozone layer, you name it, eventually uh, in the later 70s, uh, acid rain, and so on and so forth. So energy and environment have always been closely linked, and the environment is a force of change to transition. However... It is an insufficient force of change, in my opinion, to take you to where you want to go as fast as possible. That's where the energy crises come in. And unfortunately, very unfortunately, it takes a crisis to bring about the force of change, which is very powerful, and that is energy security and affordability or lack thereof.
0: So, are, are these crises competing or uh, supportive of uh,
1: each other? Great question. In the near term, they're competing. The way the script plays out in the near term, when you have a crisis like this is you have to scramble to uh, satisfy societal needs for these vital energy commodities for heat, mobility, etc. And so the first response is typically a regression. Okay, Natural gas is oil, too expensive to burn. What am I going to burn? Oh, here's coal. It's cheaper. I'm going to start burning coal. Emissions go up uh, for environment. And so the first phase is always regressive. That's the phase we're in right now as we record this podcast. But eventually, As the fog of war and the fog of the crisis sort of settles down a bit, then you start to see the policies coming in. Okay, we've got to change. And now you double down. Obviously, in Europe, they're already doubling down because they're at the heart of the crisis. We have yet to see it here, in my opinion, really in North America and other parts of the world because, you know, we're fairly shielded. Yeah, the price of gasoline up 50%. It's a nuisance for a lot of people, but we're an affluent country. But if it goes up three, four times, that's a big deal.
0: What lessons should we reflect on from the 1970s to do things differently so that we find more of a balance between environmental concerns and energy security concerns?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'll tell you why, because as I reflect on this, it's almost half a century, 48 years since the formation of the IAA and that first oil price trucks. And here we are back to square one. We've doubled oil consumption and production. Emissions are keep going up. Uh, and we've had several mini crises in between, but it's not like 1991, the Gulf War, 2003 invasion of Iraq. We have the uh, uh, lead up to the financial crisis and the price spike. I, don't we ever learn? I have not heard anything in any of these policies about how to put in like a ratchet so you don't go backwards once inevitably, you know, the, as I said, the fog of the crisis sort of clears, our supply chains improve over the next few years. But if that means that the price of uh, oil, gas, coal, et cetera, goes down, then there's sort of this sense, false sense of energy security again. If you go back to the 70s in Europe, what they did was they actually put in fairly aggressive fuel taxes, and they did not allow the price of the fuels to go down. And they, that was also an impetus to build out a lot of mass transit, high-speed rail, etc., etc. Now, we don't have the luxury as much in Canada because of our vast geography and low population density, but There's also an educational component to this, that the demand side, in other words, the consumer has to participate in the transition. And overwhelmingly, the dialogue over the last 50 years has been, how do we deal with transitioning the supply side? I think now, again, we have to think, how do we get people's mindsets to think differently? Because I don't think that part of it's been addressed.
0: One of the ideas that struck me from my conversation with Peter is from decades past that energy usually trumps climate or environmental issues when it comes to a political decision. Voters think about the here and now, they think about cost of living, and that's playing out in the world today in many different places. But a big difference today is there are many more choices for energy. And the cost of some of those choices continues to go down. So while we see a significant spike in prices for fossil fuels particularly, there's more options for all of us. And it's the consumer, that's all of us, who has a major part to play in Canada's energy transition. But there's little doubt that the suppliers, the big oil and gas producers, are also the ones who have to think differently, as Peter put it. One of them, who's thinking differently, is Susanna Pierce, the President and Country Chair of Shell Canada. She understands the challenges ahead better than most. We caught up with her next. Susanna, great to see you. Good to see you, John. (laughs) So much has changed since the last Globe Forum. It's dizzying to think about uh, pandemic, war, economic disruption, and so much more. How has all of that changed your net zero thinking?
3: One of the interesting things about net zero for us is when we talk about it and when we commit to it, it's scope one, two, and three. So it's the emissions which we create when we produce energy. It's the emissions we cause to be created because of electricity consumption or steam or heat. Uh, But it's also the emissions of our customers, and that's what we call scope three. And 90% of the emissions we need to tackle are our customers, scope three. And that's really difficult because we can control scope one and two to a larger extent than three, But with that in mind and that target in mind, you know, with the pandemic happening and now certainly with the challenges of war in Ukraine, it certainly does increase the complexity, I would say. And I think it increases, you know, the challenges we have to work with all the parties we need to to get to that commitment of net zero by 2050. Having said that, though, uh, it doesn't change the commitment. The commitment is there. We have a commitment to achieve net zero by 2050. With what we see happening in terms of the war and the disruption in the energy markets, and of course, what's happened in the rebound since the pandemic, all it really suggests is that the challenges are real. This isn't a simple solution. And I think those who have suggested the easiest way to get to net zero is just to cut fossil fuels are, are clearly, it's, it's not the answer. Because we see what happens when you cut the ability of consumers to get natural gas or oil. And they suffer from that. And we are suffering to an extent where you see prices where they are. So in short, there's no easy solution. Um, But that just means, it just means we all have to work together and that no lever should be off the table.
0: What do you say to those people who would take issue with that position and perhaps argue that high prices, shortages, rationing even, is going to drive us to change faster and adopt and scale uh, the replacement technologies?
3: Well, I, I would say I probably don't disagree that high prices will incentivize um, some to say, well, let's move more quickly to energy security that doesn't depend on fossil fuel imports. And I think that's a very you know, important thing to keep in mind. And we should look to see what we can do to lean in and, and maybe uh, continue to press towards lower carbon solutions, renewable energy solutions that don't require imports from uh, unstable areas. But there's a cost, and we're experiencing that right now. So it can't. It has to be in a way that recognizes, while we want to make that transition. We do need to think about the now, and the now really needs to be providing the energy that customers need. Because if the energy that customers need is too expensive, then they're having to make some choices. And for customers, some of whom, it's a choice between putting food on their table or paying their energy bills. For some industry, it's a choice of keeping a factory open or shutting it down. So we need to be very thoughtful about how quickly we move. But I would say to those that say it just means we need to double down. Well, I don't disagree, but we have to be mindful of the impact that has and address that along the way.
0: have to think about both. Yeah, we do. Scope three, it's really all of us. It's what we consume. It's how we uh, get through uh, our, our lives uh, in, in a comfortable and meaningful way. Uh, and many people are struggling with energy security, not just at a national level, but at a household level and trying to balance that with what I might call climate security, or at least climate stability. How are we going to ensure that people have energy security and climate security?
3: Well, uh, you know, I fundamentally believe, and when you say scope three, I mean, scope three is our customers' emissions. But if I'm the customer, scope three, I'm scope one. Those are my emissions that I'm, I'm producing when I drive my car, when I consume energy. And so You know, I think fundamentally, each one of us has to ask, you know, how much energy do I need? Are there ways that I can reduce my energy consumption? Because energy efficiency and energy reduction to an extent is one way of reducing emissions and increasing to an extent energy security because you don't need as much of it. So we have to start with what can I do to be more efficient with the energy that I use? But there will come a point, of course, where it becomes a very difficult choice between, again, food on the table, shutting a factory down... And so in the short term, I think what we have to do is find ways of accelerating the energy supply where it's needed. And as much as we can, can we find ways of accelerating the decarbonization as well? So we know in the short term, we will continue to need, or short to medium term, we'll still need fossil fuels. Because so much of our energy system runs on fossil fuels. But what can we do to decarbonize? Fuel system. So, what can we do, for example, to decarbonize uh, fuel using carbon capture sequestration? So, can we capture emissions using carbon capture sequestration, which again creates an emissions reduction while we look look to produce the fuels that the energy system needs? What can we do to increase the amount of renewable biodiesel, renewable fuels that again can reduce the amount of carbon that is in the fuel system using the fuel uh, infrastructure that we have today? So, I think there's a combination here of recognizing. The energy system runs on fossil fuels today. We can decarbonize the fossil fuels that we have by using carbon capture sequestration, renewable fuels, hydrogen, while we look to transition the types of uh, renewable infrastructure that we will need, such as EVs, such as hydrogen vehicles and all the rest of it. So there's a pathway.
0: The Canadian government has unveiled its uh, emissions reduction plan, including uh, an anticipation of a 40% reduction in net emissions for your sector by 2030. How are you going to do it?
3: What I see in the emissions reduction plan is that government has recognized that there are challenges, you know, for the private sector in making investments that are not economic So what do we need? What I see in that at first glance is that they're looking at how do I drive carbon tax price certainty? That's important because if I'm making an investment on a certain carbon tax, I want to know that it'll be there. Because if you reduce the carbon tax, then all of a sudden those investments may not be economic. They're looking at addressing some of the regulatory uncertainty. So we have the clean fuel standard, but how do we make sure again that we will be able to generate the credits? So I think the plan at this point recognizes the challenges. It doesn't mean again, it's gonna be simple, but it does mean that if we can work with customers if we can work with producers and across the entire value chain, we've got a better shot than I think we ever have had.
0: I think it's safe to say very few expected energy markets to be where they are today and to see where Canada's place is in the energy world. As Susanna noted, we can't think of Canada in isolation. We are part of a global economy and part of a global society. And that's the challenge that Canadians need to come to grips with. Coming up after the break, we'll have more Disruptors Climate Conversations from Vancouver. So stay right there.
3: You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm Teresa Do. Russia's attack on Ukraine is a defining moment for global energy markets. As governments and consumers grapple with energy shortages and high gas and power bills, climate change targets are clashing with energy security measures. Coming soon, a new RBC Economics and Thought Leadership report on how Canada can play a role in calming nervous oil markets in the short run and develop a framework for a competitive and decarbonized oil and gas sector for the long haul. The world's gonna need it. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes of this episode and visit rbc.com/slash thought leadership.
0: Welcome back. We're talking with some of the big thinkers and innovators in the energy sector here in Vancouver to figure out how we can accelerate Canada's transition to a lower emissions economy. One of the big questions that seems to be coming up repeatedly is whether Canadian oil and gas through technology and innovation can be both low emissions and globally competitive. To get more perspective on that, I talked with my colleague, Colin Guldeman, an economist with RBC Economics and Thought Leadership and principal author of our research on the climate transition. Colin, you've led our research on climate uh, through a number of reports. How do you thread the needle in your mind in terms of the the contradiction, as some would see it, between higher emissions as a result of greater oil and gas production, balancing that with not only the need, but now the uh, declared intention of the country to reduce emissions? by 40% with uh, respect to the oil and gas sector.
4: So I'll start just by noting that the government's plan to reduce emissions in the oil and gas sector does account for some growth of production through to 2030, or at least that's what their forecast suggests. And I think the story here is really that there are a lot of technological solutions that already exist in the oil and gas space to cut, for example, methane emissions, which are highly polluting and warm the atmosphere more quickly than carbon dioxide. But I think the fundamental question here is Canada's role as an oil and gas producer going forward, not just to 2030, but also to 2050. As we make these investments to decarbonize the sector, are we doing those in a way that has a view towards maintaining the competitiveness of the sector in 2050 when so much is still left uncertain about where prices will be, where production will be, and where demand will be in 2050? If you look at the landscape now, you think, okay, planes really hard to decarbonize, so we'll need oil for jet fuel. We'll need oil for petrochemicals and plastics and all these other non-combustion uses. And the IEA has a great report out that suggests that demand in a net-zero world could still be 25 million barrels a day. Canada's production around 5 million barrels a day. Why shouldn't Canada be an oil and gas producer with 20% market share? So that's that's the question. Can we fight for that last barrel? And if we decarbonize the sector smartly with an eye to cost and competitiveness, I don't see a reason why that shouldn't be the case. As Colin explained, we can have
0: both climate security and energy security, but it's going to cost us. How much is still to be determined? And the cost may be more than economic. We're going to need to think through abatement technologies that allow us to continue to produce oil and gas, at least for the foreseeable future, but also new energy technologies, both for production and consumption, that allow us to literally rewire much of our economy. Just how feasible is that? Who better to answer that than Linda Cody? Linda is executive director of the Pembina Institute, a think tank advocating for a clean energy transition. She also has a lot of experience in the energy sector, having worked as Chief Sustainability Officer for Enbridge and as Vice President of Sustainability for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Linda can take some credit for this magnificently green convention centre that graces part of the city's waterfront. Here's part of our conversation.
5: Um, Thanks.
0: So question is energy security versus climate security. So let me, Linda, start out with a broad question. Many people are thinking about this choice anew because of global events and markets. Energy security versus climate security. Is it a versus or is it possible to have both?
5: Well, it needs to be an and. I'm sure others have said this to you. It needs to be an and and not an or. Although I think it's probably correct that historically, you know, and when there's been a competition between those two values and priorities, security has obviously always trumped because people need access to energy and the energy needs to be um, affordable. But this time around, there's just a lot more at stake here. And uh, so we've got to somehow translate the or into an and. Um, and that's going to be a big challenge for Canadians especially, I think.
0: You're a great student of society. What, what do you see out there that gives you confidence that we will be able to approach this and we're uh-huh. ready as a society to approach this differently?
5: I see good leadership. I see good leadership on the part of governments today with the release of the emissions reduction plan, the new Canadian plan, which is much more detailed than anything we've ever done before. Uh, But I also see good leadership in communities, among cities, in business, in industry, in Indigenous communities, and in the nonprofit uh, NGO sector. So that's where I would be hopeful that there will be good leadership and that that leadership will be able to navigate the complexities of the trade-offs involved here.
0: How can we help society show leadership at home in terms of all of our own activities? Because many people see the price of gas or the price of heating their home and they're saying, I just can't afford this. Uh, I need to, somehow to get more of conventional energy sources so I pay less and maybe someone else can address the mega challenge of, of climate.
5: I guess it's how it's framed to them, right? And that's where leadership can make a difference. You know, definitely Canadians care about these issues. And uh, yes, energy has to be affordable. But at this point in Canada, we aren't experiencing what they're experiencing in, in Europe, although it, it could come here. And that's the uncertainty that we're facing right now.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm premising the question on... The kind of survey that shows people are willing to pay you know a couple hundred dollars a year oh, right. for climate action, but they don 't right. want to pay a lot more than that, and some of these things are expensive. A new yes. electric vehicle costs more than
5: right.
0: than a conventional one.
5: yeah not currently. everybody and not definitely not everybody is in the category where they can afford an electric vehicle, but I think we're all in the category that we can see the costs of not acting on some of the climate challenges that are out here. And we're in British Columbia today, and this is a province that in the last 10 months has been battered. It's really coming home here to people in in ways that it hasn't before. So individual choices count, but really the choices made by governments and business and cities count a lot more, right? So that's the level at which I think people have to get together around this new... Canadian climate plan, and because um, it certainly isn't can't, won't work if it's all up to the federal government to do it. So it, it is a call to action, um, and um, I think there's some reason to hope that Canadians will act on this. Well,
0: to make it happen, to make the climate plan uh, a reality, we're going to need a lot more electricity, Mm -hmm. and it needs to be clean or green electricity uh, from renewable sources. Uh, We know how to do that, but we're going to have to do it at a scale and speed that we've never done, certainly in our lifetime, uh, to be able to run a country that has 50% new vehicles by the end of this decade as electric vehicles. I'm curious what you think we need to come to grips with as a country in terms of really getting going at uh, uh, at a meaningful speed and scale to get to those 2030 goals.
5: Uh, well, demand for the electricity will obviously be part of it, right? But greater cross territorial and provincial collaboration around electricity is obviously gonna be key. And, and that's where I think that indigenous communities also come into the equation as well. On electricity, it's gonna be a much bigger lift for us than it is in the US to get to a 2035 net zero grid so it's going to take new investment mechanisms new shared infrastructure new relationships hopefully in the north american context hopefully we're not just talking about an east-west grid here hopefully it can be a north-south grid and we can take advantage of some of that speed and scale and scope
0: speed scale scope three critical words for this conversation. You hear it across the energy sector. Everyone agrees the future will include more renewables. The real challenge is how big, how bold, and how fast are we moving today? If you ask Maren Smith, she'd say, not fast enough. Marin is executive director of Clean Energy Canada, a Vancouver-based organization aiming to accelerate Canada's clean energy transition through original research, dialogue, and public engagement. And as you're about to hear, Marin is encouraged by what she sees in the renewable space and the promise for innovative, clean tech solutions to get us to net zero. <laughs> Maren, many people are thinking a little bit differently about the climate challenge than they might have, say, six months ago, given global events and what's happening in markets to, uh, to energy prices. How do you think about things differently, if at all, given how the world has changed?
2: I'd say what's going on in Ukraine right now has really brought to our attention the fact that there isn't energy security when we are dependent on fossil fuels. And so we see Europe saying, well, we're in a crisis crunch right now for getting more gas and and oil. In fact, we're going to double down and move faster on shifting to renewable energy because that provides a nation security. You can produce your own renewable energy and the costs of renewable energy have dropped significantly, 90% for things like solar, wind, also significant drops. And the kind of the linchpin is the batteries, because we know that wind and solar are intermittent, the battery costs have dropped as well. So when I look at recent events that have happened in Europe, and real the crisis around energy, uh, we are now seeing that the transition to clean renewable energy that can be created locally in many places, is part of the solution. And I think we're going to see that accelerate, including things like hydrogen as one of the energy sources. Billions and billions of dollars have already been spent in Canada dealing with climate crisis. So we need to accelerate. We know that climate change is accelerating faster than we expected. I think what we're seeing already in the electric vehicle space shows us actually when the companies get behind it and see that this is where the world is going. We have seen dozens of new makes and models come out, including some of Canadians' favorite cars, like the Ford F-150 is coming out with an electric version. Uh, We're seeing other trucks, SUVs, uh, coming out with as electric models in the next few years. So I think that once business sees the opportunity And we're experiencing that that's why the price of solar wind batteries have all dropped is because industry is seeing that this is where the world is going and they are developing the products there so when we talk about energy security um, actually this energy transition is going to take us to a more secure future but it's not just energy security it's economic security
0: depending on your projection we're going to need to double maybe even triple our electricity supply uh, over the next couple of decades. Where's that going to come from? Is it all wind and solar? Will we need more hydro, nuclear? What are the sources we're going to need to invest in?
2: Yeah, so electricity is something that Canada's good at. We already have over 80% zero emission grid. Uh, You know, we have huge enormous potential resources. Alberta and Saskatchewan are the leaders in uh, solar resources and is on par with places like Florida. Um, Even Vancouver, rainy Vancouver, has the same amount of solar energy as Germany. But this is where innovation comes in. Uh, This is where I'm going to be excited to see what comes. Solar and wind are clearly cheap, sources of renewable energy at this point? Are we going to see solar roofing tiles? Are we going to see solar windows in buildings? Geothermal, where is that going to fit into the mix of things? I'm not sure that we're going to see either nuclear or large scale hydro because of the cost, because there are other energies now, renewable energies that are so much cheaper. But there there will be places where those energies are important and do need to be part of the mix. I think what is exciting to me is what is going to happen in this space going forward, because with the potential to double or triple our electricity in Canada, I think we're going to see some creative new ideas. I'm back
0: outside overlooking Burrard Inlet. The clouds have rolled in. The rain is sprinkling. We've heard over this episode the enormous challenges and opportunities Canada faces in the climate transition. We've never done anything like this as a country, certainly not at the speed and scale that we're going to need to take on the transition in the coming years. Electric vehicles, hydrogen, food production, housing, everything is going to have to evolve but faster. We're all gonna have to change the way we make things, the way we consume things, the way we sell things to the world. Great opportunity for those who get it right. Our research from RBC Economics suggests we're going to need to mobilize $80 billion a year to make that happen. That's about four times what we spend and invest now in transition-related activities. But the capital is there. The public desire is there increasingly the public policy is there and the ambition in many businesses is there. How are we going to do it? How are we going to balance energy security and climate security? Well, it's possible, but it's going to take a lot of innovation. That's what we're going to chase in our next episode. We're going to meet some of Canada's great clean tech innovators and hear about what they're doing, how they're building differently and how they see the future as an exciting one for all of us. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Talk to you soon.
2: Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.